morning. Uh, it is my privilege to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Um, he preached with us uh, a few months ago, I believe in December, uh, Steve Unthank, and uh, he is a good friend of mine and uh, a man that I deeply respect, deeply look up to. It's been one of the biggest joys in my life to watch God use him and uh, in some amazing ways over the past couple years um, as, as we've gotten to know one another better. And he's a man that is, is deeply committed to God's word, uh, studies it hours and hours every day. And, and uh, so I'm sure that is, is so evident if you've heard him speak before, if you were here the last time, and as, you, as he comes to speak with us this morning, uh, his, his commitment to God's word and to studying it and to understanding it and, and to helping, helping his listeners apply it to their lives. Um, and so it, I, I love him, and, and it is a, is a deep honor to have him with us this morning. And he has asked me to read the passage this morning, uh, one of the most famous passages uh, in the Old Testament, something that uh, all, our, all the kids grow up in Sunday school learning is the passage of David and Goliath. And so um, I'm excited to see what he does with it this morning. So if you have your Bibles, would you open them to 1 Samuel chapter 17? It is page 239 in the pew Bible in front of you. First Samuel chapter 17 reads this. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, and Ephesdamin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand 
morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, but he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. 
And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you had defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shara'im as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul and the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Good morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning that you've given us. Father, we thank you for your word. It is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and able by your grace to do surgery upon our hearts. And Lord, we ask that as we meditate and hear from your word this morning, you would powerfully, graciously, mercifully draw our attention and our heart's affections to behold Jesus Christ. Lord, to see him in his glory. And Lord, we pray that your glory would be had and your will be done. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here we are this morning, having just read a long chapter, no doubt, but what is one of the most well-known stories uh, in the Bible, as Keith said, whether you've grown up in the church 
or you haven't, maybe you've never even opened the Bible, it's more likely that you have heard of the story of David and Goliath. Uh, It is the archetypal story of the underdog, young David overcoming and courageously defeating that brutal giant Goliath. We love this story. And so this is a text that I'd like to encourage you with this morning. As we just read of David and the courage he had in going out to defeat Goliath, I would like you, no matter who you are this morning, to consider the giants in your life. Identify those people or those areas in your life that seem insurmountable and undefeatable. And as we look and consider David's actions, listen on with ready and and hungry anticipation to learn how you too can overcome and slay down the giants in your life. What are the five steps that David took? Five steps represented by the five smooth stones uh, that will allow you to stir up courage within yourself and without fear overcome those big fearful giants in your life. What can we learn from David on how to defeat the giant of a horrible boss who burdens you with work you're not supposed to do and then takes the credit for it? How can we learn from uh, David to... To, to stir up courage uh, that will overcome the giant of fear and anxiety that, that keeps us immovable in our houses at times? And in what ways can we muster up the courage of David on how to defeat the Goliath of repeated sin or, or perhaps the giant of doubt which disables us at every turn? Friends, perhaps you could tell in my voice already, but I want to ask, is that really what this passage is all about? Is our text before us really a five-step plan on how to courageously overcome the giants in our lives? Sure, there are probably some things here we may be able to loosely apply to our lives here and there. But I want to sensitively suggest that we not fall into the modern American trap of turning our Bibles into a field field guide for our best life now. It would be a mistake For me as a preacher of the gospel to make the main point of this passage, the courage and strength of David, and then in a kind of locker room pep talk, uh, stir you up into a frenzy and and build up courage and then send you on your way and say, go get them. No, that's not the gospel of grace. And I thank God that that's not the point of this passage. What I want to do this morning is to preach Jesus Christ. Because Jesus himself has even said that the whole Old Testament points to him. It's not about us. This chapter, the Bible as a whole, is not about us and what we can do to defeat the giants in our lives. But it is all about what he has done as a conquering king on our behalf. You see, I want us to walk away this morning more concerned with the glory of God as seen in the Son of God, Jesus, who is the only one who can ultimately fight for us. In fact, here's what I think this morning's text is all about. God's glory is seen so well in our weakness because our weakness beautifully displays the glory of God. That's it. Our weaknesses highlight the power and strength of God, a God who keeps his promises and a God who establishes his kingdom. You see, as we come to this text this morning, our temptation will be to compare ourselves with David. Uh, to put ourselves in David's place in the story and apply his actions to our lives. Whereas I think, yes, maybe we can see some things here and there. For the most part, I think we should align ourselves somewhere else in this story. As we work through the text, 
I want you to be thinking in the back of your minds, who am I ultimately in this passage? Now, we need to come to this text with the right perspective. Not the perspective, as I said, of this modern American pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps interpretation. Not with the perspective of this being primarily about us, but from the perspective of the Word of God. What is God's perspective? Well, we read the context. Every text has a context, and the context sets us up beautifully. And we see it in chapter 16. If you've read chapter 16, and I'll summarize it for you now, it says this. You would have seen the prophet Samuel whom this book is named after, tasked by God and to go and anoint a man who would become the next king of Israel. You see, the current king of Israel, Saul, up until now has squandered and made a shipwreck of his kingship. Uh, he has feared people and men over God, and he has not obeyed God's word wholeheartedly. And so God told Samuel that he was going to raise up another man who will become king, a man after his own heart. Samuel comes to Jesse, and Jesse presents to the prophet all his sons. And Samuel, starting with the oldest and the tallest, goes to him and is sure that Jesse's eldest son is he. That's the next king. Man, that's a manly man. And what does God say? Well, God tells Samuel in chapter 16, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then finally, God tells Samuel to anoint David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, the person no one expected. See, God was choosing the next king of Israel, David, this scrawny kid who no one knew about. That's the statement that we want to look for that gives us the right commentary, the right perspective on what chapter 17 is all about. And we see that now, don't we? As soon as we have chapter 16 in our minds, that God doesn't look on the outward appearance, but on the heart of a man, doesn't everything in chapter 17 begin to start clicking in place? Some things make sense now. Uh, Chapter 17 uh, uh, is describing Goliath as what? Well, we see this big, bad, impressive man of war. It says that he's described as a champion of the Philistines from Gath standing over nine feet tall and equipped with the best armor around. Not only that, he had the best and the biggest weapons. A spear, which was as big as a weaver's beam, and the head of the spear, which was said to weigh about 16 pounds. What was Israel's response to this terrifying, impressive man? Well, look down at verse 11. Verse 11 tells us plainly, When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, and they saw him, They were dismayed and greatly afraid. You see the initial problem of this chapter? Israel and Saul, the king of Israel, did not have the right perspective. They're seeing things not as God sees things. They're not trusting in what God has promised. They see Goliath with their eyes, and immediately they cower in fear. Has Saul forgotten the words of Deuteronomy 28, in which God promised to be with his people in battle? This is what Deuteronomy 28 says, that when the enemies of Israel gather to battle against Israel, God will cause the enemies of Israel to scatter seven ways. The problem is not that Goliath is there and ready to do damage. No, the problem of the text is this, that Israel and Israel's king are not trusting in God's word and are instead reacting to what they've seen from their own limited perspective. Goliath looms large in the sight of Israel, 
And Israel is cast into a wilderness of fear. Why do I say a wilderness of fear? Well, because verse 16 tells us that for 40 days, Goliath came forward and took his stand morning and evening, shouting curses at Israel and defying the ranks of Israel. The writer of Samuel certainly is bringing to our minds, if we know our Old Testaments, the 40 years of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Why did Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Well, they were unable to enter the promised land because of their fear of the giants that were in the land. When God had first brought that initial generation out of Egypt into Canaan, they failed to enter into that promised land and drive out the people living there because they feared what they saw there. You see, they trusted more in what they saw with their eyes and what they heard God promise say he would do. And so here, in chapter 17, the author of Samuel is alluding to this. And we have to ask the question, is the same thing going to happen? Is this happening all over again? Is Israel repeating the sins of their forefathers? And the answer is yes. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 11, shows us an unbelieving Israel. And we're meant as readers to say, oh no, this is happening all over again. And then you read verse 12. What does verse 12 say? We get a first bit of relief. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. So there's Goliath, this massive man with his massive military army. There's fearful Saul with his cowering army. And now in verse 12, there's David. We know David because of chapter 16. The original readers of this text would have known David because they know what he became. Excitement should be building in us as readers. And the writer will not disappoint. The plot thickens, right? As we find out about David's three older brothers who are in the front lines of Israel's army. And David's father, Jesse, sends David to bring some food to his brothers. Things begin to get interesting. As David arrives, what does he overhear? Well, he overhears Goliath Goliath yelling out his usual taunts and curses. We see again in verse 24, the fearful response of Israel. It says, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him. And we're much afraid. Again, I think it's very intentional that the writer highlights they're seeing Goliath and they're being afraid and fleeing. This is an important point. The Bible always points out this dichotomy between seeing and hearing. Eve saw the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And seeing and delighting in it, she sinned rather than hearing what God said to not touch that tree. Uh, Lot saw that the land to the east was good and left Abraham for Sodom and Gomorrah rather than trusting in what God said to Abraham and promised to him. Uh, Later, we'll see in David's life that David sees Bathsheba upon the roof and sins with her rather than trusting in God's word about adultery. You see, again and again throughout Scripture, there is this dichotomy between trusting what your eyes see and trusting what you hear of God's words. And here, the men of Israel trust in what they see and respond in sinful fear, as they tell us again in verse 25. See verse 25, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. You see, they have the wrong perspective. They're afraid in what they see in Goliath. And you know, that wrong perspective carries over into how they respond to David as well. We'll look at David's response to Goliath in a minute because that's important. But look how the author lays out everyone's perspective when it comes to how they see David. In verse 28, Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard David speaking. And it says there that his anger was kindled against David. 
You can almost see the embarrassment of anger welling up in Eliab, his older brother. He's been here for 40 days listening to Goliath call forth any man to fight against him, and no one has stepped up. And then here comes his youngest brother who says, I can do it. Of course Eliab was angry and shamed and embarrassed. And so he says to him, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness, you irresponsible boy? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. You see, Eliab's perspective of David is cast through the lens of his own embarrassment. Look at verse 33. Saul's perspective of David is that he's too young and inexperienced. Saul says, you're not able to go out against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. Saul's perspective on David is guided by his trust in age and experience. He sees David's youthfulness and size, and he's unconvinced. And then we see Goliath's perspective on David. Look at verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. You see, Goliath disdained David because he was a young boy, no older than 17, ready to go to hand-to-hand combat with one of the most fearsome soldiers of all time. Goliath, no doubt, scarred and aged by years of war, being approached by a young and handsome boy. The picture is laughable because Goliath's perspective was guided by what he knew of war and fighting. You see the picture here? Everyone had the wrong perspective. Friends, might you have the wrong perspective? Are your convictions and decisions based more upon what you see in front of you over and against what God has promised to you in his word? Have you traditionally chosen a church because of its size and the sound of its music over and against what God has prescribed for a healthy church to look like, like gospel preaching? Perhaps you're trusting more in your bank account and retirement plan, assured by the safety of mutual funds and basing your self-worth on what you can do and buy. Are you trusting in your good works or maybe your religious pedigree, the books you've read, the amount of uh, money you tithe on a Sunday, or maybe the verses of scripture you can recite off memory, when all along God has promised that life is found in Jesus Christ alone, and it is in him alone that we are to place our trust. You see, what is your perspective this morning? Is it guided by what you can see and trust or what God has said and promised? Well, it's here where the author of 1 Samuel shows us the answer to having a wrong perspective. Again, look down at verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter. And make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. We see here the beginning of what is to have the right, what it is to have the right perspective. Do you know what else is amazing about this verse? Did you know that this is the first time in Scripture where we hear David speak? David is arguably one of the most important characters in the Old Testament other than God. And these are his first recorded words. And what words they are. Remember I said that I thought this chapter was all about God's glory being seen in our weakness? Because our weakness highlights God's glory. 
Well, that's what David's answer shows us. David's answer is firstly concerned with what? With God's glory. David's perspective is guided by his knowledge of God and a concern for his glory. You see it so beautifully in this statement in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should deny the armies of the living God? Goliath is taunting and and mocking the Israeli army. And David rightly sees this as not just a man mocking other men, but as an ambassador for the Philistines. And all that the Philistines stand for in their false gods, mocking Yahweh, the living God of Israel. For 40 days, these mere men, a giant, this mere man, a giant of a man, yes, but still a mere man, was yelling curses at God, and no one did a thing. No one until David arrived. These words got to David. They pierced his heart. For indeed, he says, who is this man defying the living God? Here the perspective in chapter 17 is one concerned firstly and principally with God and with the fame of his name. And you know, this isn't something that only comes out here in 1 Samuel 17, but is actually a perspective which began all the way back in Genesis. And if you know Genesis, in Genesis 3.15, where God said to Eve, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we see this clash. From there, the beginning of the fall and onward throughout the history of God's redemptive purposes, there has always been this clash between two kingdoms. The kingdom of the seed of the woman and the kingdom of the seed of the serpent. It was seen in Cain, clashing with Abel. It was seen between the sons of Cain, clashing with the descendants of Seth. It was seen between Lot, clashing with the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was seen between Isaac and Esau, between Moses and Pharaoh, between Samson and the Philistines. And now it's seen between David and Goliath. You see, this story in chapter 17 is not just a legend of a young boy who courageously overcomes fear to fight a giant. This is a historical account of a battle which is part of a much bigger story. This is one flashpoint, an important uh, 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 flashpoint, no doubt, which fits in within the larger redemptive history of highlighting kingdom against kingdom. The perspective here is of God raising up a young man to carry on the banner of victory in God's unstoppable kingdom. It's much bigger than David. And the way in which God has done this here is in raising up David, who, as we see in the text, is in and of himself weak and insignificant. But he's concerned vehemently with God and his glory. You see, David is a man whose perspective is guided by the honor of God. And and this isn't just something that David wants to keep to himself. David knows that the glory and honor of God is a banner to which the whole world will see and bow down. Did you notice how David's theology is profoundly big here in the text? Look at verse 46. David says that he will kill Goliath, and for what reason? At the end of the verse, he says, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This is not a man concerned with the local deity and therefore content with local worship. David doesn't fall into the postmodern foolishness of saying, I'll worship my God, you worship your God, and we're all kind of okay. No, David is jealous to make the one true living God known throughout the world. Are you concerned with the honor and glory of God as David is? When you hear Jesus' name mocked and the name of God used as a a foul expletive, does your heart hurt? And are you concerned? Or is sin so prevalent in your life that God's name and the glory of Christ is barely a concern at all? 
The Puritan Thomas Watson famously declared that till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And I'm afraid that for many of us, sin is so sweet that Christ is hardly on our thoughts at all. But that isn't true for David. For David, God's glory was paramount. Because David was constrained by the glory and honor of God, David was willing to stand up to Goliath. I think it's actually better to say this, though, that because God's glory was paramount to God, God was willing to use the least likely of people, seen as so weak to defeat Goliath. And that's what I mean when I say God's glory is seen in our weakness. The big underlying theme here is the utter ridiculousness of David being the one to defeat Goliath. It's supposed to be shocking because it's not about David but about God. We're given a lot of space about how big and bad Goliath is, and then we're given detail after detail about how unfitting David is for the job. Firstly, he's not even in the army. He's too young to join. Then he arrives on the scene, and the first thing Saul mentions is what? His youth and his inexperience. On top of that, when Saul puts his armor and helmet on David, it's too big and it weighs him down. He can't even move forward. He's not used to it. And then we see the arms race between David and Goliath. Goliath has a sword, a giant spear, and a separate man to carry his own shield. David brings a staff and a sling. That's it. The feeling we're supposed to get is, what is going on? This is not right. Uh, Have you guys seen Karate Kid? Karate Kid, the first one, after uh, he fights the big bad guy, and he's clearly losing throughout the whole fight, uh, and he breaks his ankle, Mr. Miyagi takes him back, and you're thinking, all right, he's going to fix him, wrap him up. No, he he does the weird warm hand thing. And and you come out of that saying, that's not going to do anything. What is going on? He is not going to win. And that's the same type of feeling we get here. What is David doing? The warm hands are not going to defeat Goliath. Well, That's when we get this magnificent answer from David. Look at verse 43. David comes to the battlefield ill-prepared, barely yet a man, no weapons in hand. And what does he say? And the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistines said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, verse 46, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Oh, he has the right perspective and emphasis in those words. David acknowledges his own weakness and his clear inherent inability to fight. So what is it that allows him to go through the battle so boldly? What is, why is David undaunted by the battle before him? Well, we see the reason. Two reasons, I think, mainly. The first reason comes in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And again in verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Verse 47, so that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is who? It's of the Lord. That's what wells up in David as he faces the Philistine before him. It wasn't a kind of inherent courage and boldness that David had to stir up. 
It was surety in God. You see, David's theology of God, his right concern with the glory of God, welled up within him a practice which honored God. It was God's sovereign hand, the living God who ruled over all existence, which determined the end from the beginning, which allowed David, this mere kid, to be undaunted by the evident inequality in might. In fact, it was precisely because of David's weakness which allowed him to be so dependent upon such a mighty God in the first place. If it's true that God's glory is seen in our weakness, then we must ask, why is God's glory seen in our weakness? And the answer is so simple, that there's no room for anyone to boast in themselves when the person used is utterly weak and incapable. God is seen as great when weak vessels are used for great purposes. David's weakness was the means for highlighting God's greatness precisely because David was not great. Therefore, David knows and declares, the Lord will win this battle. How far, I fear, many of us have strayed from that good theology. We assume that our demise, to our demise, that the greater we look, the greater we become, the more we'll accomplish for God. We want our churches big. The Western church has set herself on making our worship to look and sound like a U2 concert at times because those are the things that the world sees as impressive. My prayer is that God would use the churches in this area, churches like Greenbelt Baptist, in such a way that no one would mistake God's power and how he's growing his kingdom. That is, that God would be pleased to use weak churches for great purpose. Uh, The Apostle Paul made this point when he wrote in 1 Corinthians that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, are we content to be weak in order for God to be made great? Who of us will stand before God and say, look at all the things I did for you, rather than bow in humility and say, Lord, what amazing things you did through me? Well, the other reason David is undaunted by the mockery and strength of Goliath is actually so simple a reason that it's hardly ever mentioned in commentaries, and I wonder why. David can confidently go to battle with Goliath because David knows that God is going to make him king over Israel, right? In chapter 16, we just read, or I just explained to you, of Samuel's anointing David and the promise that God said to David, he will be king. Well, David is not yet king, so he will not yet die. That's it. David is rightly trusting in the promises of God and is in faith relying on God's work to accomplish in him what was already begun a chapter ago. God's glory is seen in David's weakness as he rests in God's promises, You see, while everyone else trusted in what they saw and were afraid, David trusted in what God had already promised in his word. David is used by God to destroy Goliath. And notice, too, this long chapter, how many lines does it take to describe the actual battle? Two verses. He's not concerned with the actual fighting of Goliath. He wants us to look at everything around it. Well, what has David used? He's used powerfully by God to destroy the mighty warrior Goliath. And to make the final point even clearer, how does David kill, uh, finally uh, kill Goliath? The author tells us that David didn't even have a sword. So he had to go and borrow against Goliath's will his own sword and lob off his head. Notice also the order of events here. And this is important. It wasn't David's boldness which moved God to choose and use David. You see, David didn't take the first step of courageous faith and, and then God did the rest. 
No, it was God first who chose and anointed David. And here we see David's response of thankfulness and faithfulness. David is bold because he has a theology focused on the glory of God, a theology which trusts in the sovereign omnipotence of God, and a theology which rests in God's revealed promises. David is bold because it was first God who came to him and was pleased to use him. As God's people, we too can be and should be spending every day rehearsing the promises of God that he's given to us in his word, resting and relying upon them, allowing them to take root in our feeble and weak hearts, stirring up within us faithful worship and emboldened living. And we can do that because we know God has first come to us and is he alone who has saved us. We, like David, are weak and in and of ourselves desperately in need of a God who is powerful to save. Well, we've seen how this chapter shows us God's glory and David's weakness because of God's promises. But I want to end by showing us how all of this points to God's overall kingdom. This chapter is, as we've already stated, about the living God who has been from the dawn of creation establishing his kingdom through his people in a dark and sinful world. Kingdom against kingdom. And here in chapter 17, God is establishing his own king to rule his people and make the glory of his own name known through the weakness of David. God's kingdom of Israel will be ruled by a king who fears the Lord alone, yes. But I started off this morning by telling you that this chapter is also about Jesus Christ, right? David is not ultimately the king to rule and represent God's kingdom, but he's only a foretaste of the true king to come, Jesus Christ. Did you notice the peculiar means of battle in this chapter? I've never seen a battle like this take place on CNN. One man representing the army of the Philistines fighting against one man who represents God's people, Israel. And really, this is a picture of what we've already described as this cosmic battle of kingdoms. Two kingdoms fought between two representatives. In Romans 5, we get a clear picture of this. Paul lays out for us these two kingdoms. And he says that in one kingdom, there are those who are either in Adam, men and women, dead in sins, loving and living in darkness, ruled under Satan, which is in stark contrast to those who are in Christ. Sons of the living God, loving and living in God, living in light. You see, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what the Bible presents to us as the ultimate reality, undergirding everything, is that the battle ultimately is not up to us. The battle ultimately, just as it was for David in 1 Samuel 17, is determined and won by God in and through Jesus Christ. He is our representative and head. Just as David won the victory for all those in his kingdom, well, so too Christ has won life and victory for any who would put their faith in him. And it is no coincidence that just as David won the victory through his very weakness, so too has our king, Christ Jesus, gained victory over death in and through his weakness, weakness which led him to the cross and ultimately death. You see, David didn't die, but instead lobbed off the head of his enemy, Goliath. But Jesus, by dying, crushed the head of an even greater enemy, Satan. He did die, but his death was indeed the death of death and the death of Satan. And it wasn't the perspective of everyone at the time of Jesus. Uh, It it was very similar uh, in the way people looked at Jesus and how they looked at David. In David's day, everyone was looking for a man like King Saul or greater who could come out mightily and defeat Goliath. 
And everyone in Jesus' day was also looking for a mighty king who would bring military might, a king who would destroy the giant of Rome and establish a powerful kingdom with sword and spear. But Christ had a different perspective, didn't he? He knew, as we've seen this morning, that God's glory would be seen most clearly in his weakness, in his death. Jesus was a king who would rely upon the promises of God to bring about great things through his own suffering. Friends, 1 Samuel 17 is a chapter which points brightly to the coming of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. And for us today, two millennia after the death and resurrection of our king, we can confidently rest in him, trusting that in our weakness, he can and will do great things. Remember at the beginning when I asked the question of who we are in this story and how we're a lot of times tempted to see ourselves as David and so we're to be courageous and bold? I think as we see this chapter and how it fits in with the rest of the Bible, we should actually be putting ourselves into the shoes of the sacred, I'm sorry, the scared Jewish army. You see, it's David who is acting as a representative on behalf of all Israel. Scared, bewildered, and weak Israel. David here is a type of Christ, Christ who is our representative, our savior, our conquering warrior on behalf of us, people too who are weak, scared, and bewildered. You see, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ alone, trusting in him and what he's done in dying for us on the cross, the battle is already won. We are united to him by faith. And as Roman tells us, by faith we die in his death and we're raised to new life in his resurrection. We're born again. But of course, we could be on the side of the Philistines, standing behind Goliath maybe, confidently taunting God and God's people. We could if we haven't put our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the David-like warrior, still be aligned with the rest of the world that proudly opposes God. Friends, if that's you this morning, I humbly beseech you to turn and behold a greater one than David, Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the hero who came to save us. Now turn with me as we close to 2 Corinthians 2.14. Here in this chapter, Paul is wrestling with the ideas coming out of the Corinthian church. Ideas which said that the church needs powerful men, great programs, super apostles, exciting and miraculous worship services in order to do great things and attract the world around them. Throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul says no to this faulty way of thinking, reminding them how he himself came with humility, not able to speak and preach well, but trusting that God was pleased to use his weakness. Look at 2 Corinthians 2.14. Paul makes an amazing claim about how it is the church and we as Christians are to have victory in this life. He says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul's point is that our boldness today is humbly declaring the gospel of Christ and that that, that's only possible because of Christ's victory in death. Just as David would return after this battle uh, in in victory over Goliath, 
uh, hearing the songs of the Israelites praising his victory over the Philistines as he marches out in front of the triumphal procession back into Jerusalem will a glorious parade of victory behind him. And here Paul says that Christ is now leading us who are in him in a much greater triumphal procession. Our procession, which follows after Christ, our victorious king, is one which spreads the fragrance and aroma of the knowledge of Christ throughout the whole world. You see, God's glory is still central. And just as David proclaimed God's glory to to be known to the ends of the earth, so it is being fulfilled right now in us who follow the triumphal procession of Christ. The giants have already been killed. The battle's already won. We who are in Christ are commissioned by him to respond in thankfulness and spread his great and glorious name to the edges of the world, declaring the battle over, and Jesus Christ is the victor. So as we continue to worship this morning, let us in our confessed weakness confidently uphold Christ our King and the glory of God, remembering that God's glory is seen so well in our weakness because our weakness beautifully displays God's glory and Christ's powerful salvation. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we do confess that we are weak and in and of ourselves unable uh, to accomplish great things. Uh, but Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that Christ is he who accomplishes all things on our behalf. And Lord, we put our trust and we rest in him so that we might exalt him and make him known to the rest of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.